0: Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly Writers Club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the Classes tab. So the other night, I went out with a group of girls I didn't know to an expensive restaurant I hadn't been before, and I felt really out of my comfort zone. I'm a person who likes to stay at home and play dominoes with my four best friends, so while I was there, I just I didn't I didn't know what to say or didn't what to do. So I just complained about the price of everything. I complained about the cost of the babysitter. I complained about everything, and I was sure that everyone thought I was an asshole. And I'm sure I ruined everybody's evening. I told Misha, a student in the class, and he told me about these principles he learned in Seeds of Peace a camp he worked at for kids in um, conflict areas, so like Israel and Afghanistan and Palestine. They all come together. The concept there is they take these kids out of their comfort zone just a little bit, where they're talking to people they don't know about concepts and ideas and principles that are uncomfortable. They call that the stretch zone. And little by little, they grow. But if you push them too far into their stretch zone, they can panic and revert back to their comfort zone. So when he said that, I was like, oh, my God, that's what happened to me. I tried too many things too fast. Even though it seems pretty menial just going out with these girls, I just panicked. Hey, it's Allison, and this is Writing Class Radio, Today, I'm your host, and we're talking about comfort zones, or in my case, discomfort zones. Misha came to class his very first day and tells a very revealing story about his hairy butt, which he is self-conscious of. But he just came to class and he said, fuck it. I'm going to lay it out here and see how it goes. Misha's story is commonly referred to as the hairy ass story. He not only told it in class, he worked on it and then actually got on the stage at lip service, a live storytelling event in Miami, and told it again in front of 300 people.
1: I have incredibly thick hair all over my body. My ass is hairy, (laughs) very hairy. You know those brown, woolly coconut shells (laughs) with, like, thick, hairy husks? Well, picture two of them side by side, and you have my ass. I sweat so much in the summer. I know everyone thinks they sweat, that they've got problems. I've got problems. I sweat. My hairiness comes from my mother's side. Those Kurdish Iranian hairy brothers of hers. Monkey like with confident puffy tufts on their shoulders. Their pre-revolution Iranian aristocracy, charming and tall, with handsome, grinning faces. I'd like to think I inherited their charm and confidence, but more than any of that, I got their hair. (laughs) I don't have a hairy back. For the few who have seen my ass, the hairless back comes as somewhat of a surprise. (laughs) There are little hairs on my lower back that transition into the nightmare on my ass. (laughs) In the eighth grade, Corey, a smooth-skinned white boy with a coiff of hazel hair on his head saw me with my shirt off and said that the little hairs on my lower back were like the ones he'd seen on Latina girls at the beach. He called them bitch hairs. If only he had seen my ass. When I was 13, I tried shaving my ass. The next morning in algebra, I felt the thick stalks of stubble growing back. I fidgeted in my seat. David, the dark Cuban boy to my right, kept glancing at me. At some point, he leaned over and in a gentle whisper asked if I'd shaved my ass. For a moment, I thought I'd be exposed, that he'd start laughing, the classroom would would turn to stare, and by the end of the day, the entire school would be talking about that kid who shaved his ass. But instead, David just smiled warmly and said, it gets so itchy, right? I nodded and looked into the kind eyes of this new friend who seemed to understand me more than anyone else ever had. (laughs) I saw David's ass later that year (laughs) and was very disappointed. We were at a pool party. David climbed out of the pool and mooned us all. The hair was barely noticeable. It was sparse and light, like a fuzzy peach. It completely blended in to his coffee-colored, jiggling ass. All the hot girls in the pool shrieked with delight. I thought, what a liar, what a traitor. His cutely hairy ass with fucking peach-like fuzz had absolutely nothing to do with the beastly secret hidden in my swimming suit, my hairy coconuts. As I got older, it only got harder to hide my nature. My older sister was the first to point out the budding unibrow. I anguished over this news for weeks. Then my little balls grew wisps of blonde hair on them. My arms and legs were already teeming with hair. My ass hair grew longer and thicker. (laughs) A few years later, my chest would erupt. It began to dawn on me that this was only the beginning. (laughs) I just keep getting hairier. My mother gave me pep talks, trying to convince me that I should be proud of my hairy body. That hairiness was sexy. There I was, 15, slumped over at the dinner table as she went on about how much she and all her sisters loved going to the movies to see Sean Connery's hairy chest. How sexy he was. I grimaced at the thought of my mother sneaking furtive looks at Sean Connery's hairy nipples. I tried explaining to her that sexy today was different Sexy was Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, gorgeous, perfectly chiseled man boys with smooth hairless bodies. And anyways, I said, you thought Sean Connery's hairy chest was sexy, not his hairy ass. (laughs) My mom threw up her hands and cried out, chest, ass, what's the difference? I shouted back, there's a huge difference. (laughs) My first girlfriend, Danielle, helped me relax a little about my ass. We met when I was 19. The first few times we got naked, I'd angle my ass away from her. (laughs) She never said anything about it, but sometimes during sex, she'd wrap her hands around it, sliding her fingers through the sweaty locks of ass hair. (sighs) I was so sensitive, so not used to being seen, let alone touched there that each time she did it, my body would quiver violently. (laughs) She kept grabbing my ass for the five years we were together, and I gradually became more comfortable with how it felt. I even started to like it. Sometimes she'd scrub my ass in the shower, and then I'd scrub hers in return. Look at that booty, she'd say when we dried off. And then she'd give my ass a little spank. She treated my ass like it was normal, even even lovable. I can't say that I like my hairy ass, but we've bonded. I take some pride in having lived with it for all these years. In fact, I recently had a competition with a man over who had the hairier ass. Tom was my friend Eric's roommate. Last summer, I stayed with them in Brooklyn for a week. Eric and I had worked together at a summer camp where rumors about my hairy ass had spread among the counselors. (laughs) Despite my reputation, Eric was convinced that his roommate, Tom, had a hairier ass than me. As we walked up the steps to his apartment, Eric went on and on about Tom's hairy ass and how it was weird because it didn't seem like he'd be hairy down there. I couldn't stand it. I started picturing Tom, probably some white guy in a polo shirt whose distant Eastern European ancestry had passed along some mildly hairy asshole gene Tom was probably just hairy enough to be able to laugh about it with other smooth-skinned, pale-faced guys. Guys who know nothing about what it was like to grow up with thick, uncooperative hair all over your body. Tom, I thought. Hairless Nordic fuck. Moments after entering their apartment, Eric introduced me to Tom. He was wearing an olive green polo shirt and thick rimmed glasses. He had a spiffy haircut and a handsome, clean-shaven face. For a moment, the room was silent and we just stared at each other. I said, so you're the one who thinks he has a hairy ass. Tom didn't laugh or stiffen up. He just looked me dead in the eye and said, I've heard that you think you also have a hairy ass. Eric took a step back. Tom, I said, I don't think you have a hairy ass. And frankly, I don't think you should parade around saying that you do. (laughs) Tom took a breath and leaned in closer. Look, he said, I don't know you that well. You look like a pretty hairy guy. (laughs) And I'm sure you've got a hairy ass, but I doubt it's as hairy as mine. I stood up and turned around so that my ass was facing them. I loosened my belt, let my cargo shorts slip to the floor and felt the cool air against my skin. I shut my eyes and soaked up their stunned silence (laughs) in the presence of my sexy coconuts. Thank you.
0: So, in Misha's case, he had to get into the stretch zone to reveal who he really was and to wipe away all the barriers to growth. And it helped, it worked for him. And it's how he proceeded in class. Every story was more revealing and more revealing. And we really got to know him and love him immediately. When somebody reveals their most, you know, their biggest secret and their biggest worry, you just love them. You know, in Andrea's situation, she's the next storyteller. Andrea is the type of person who just busts into a room and tells jokes and funny things and things that may, that shock you. Uh, and it works for her. Next, Andrea tells a story about the time she went too
2: far into her stretch zone. At midnight... My midwife, Dana, drove me to the Hollywood Birth Center. My mom, her boyfriend, Bob, and my two best friends followed in a separate car. The birth center, until we got there that night, was just an empty house. I took a shower right away because Dana said hot water would ease the pain. By then, I'd been having contractions for eight hours, and while the hot water felt hot, it did nothing to ease the pain. So I got out of the shower. Also, I had an overwhelming urge to shit. I think they call this back labor. As I crossed the bathroom to the toilet, a brown blob fell out of my body and splat on the floor. I thought I'd lost control of my bowels. I stared at the slimy blob. It was about the size of my hand with two tentacles like fingers. It was dark brown with an egg whites quality to the tentacles. I stood over it then stepped over it, then walked around it. I didn't want anyone to see it, not even Dana. But my friends were right there, standing in the bathroom doorway. I was humiliated. I did that? Sorry. Dana was quick with toilet paper. She scooped it up and smelled it. Turns out the blob on the floor wasn't shit. It was the mucus plug. In all my natural birth classes, and I took an eight-week series at the birth center, no one mentioned the plug. Our teacher did mention the possibility of orgasm during those final moments when the baby pushes through the vagina. I rolled my eyes, but one of my classmates got into it and brought it up every class. That's going to be me, you guys. I'm going to have an orgasm. She was a music therapist. class, we talked a lot about orgasm, but never talked about the mucus plug. At the scene, Dana explained this was a mucusy substance that plugs up the vagina and has to come out before the baby. It was gross. You'd think, or I'd think, that nothing could embarrass me after that, and usually nothing does. Before I even got pregnant, I got the idea to have a baby on stage. I was living in Los Angeles and was inspired by Sandra Sing who is as famous a performance artist as they get, so you've probably never heard of her. She had stories to tell, but first she needed someone to tell them to, so she did a piano recital suspended from the 405. She received some attention with her Freeway concert and went on to enjoy a career as a radio columnist, author, and performer of one-woman shows. I wanted to be like her. Giving birth on stage seemed like the greatest idea ever. I couldn't believe Sandra Sing hadn't thought of it. There's drama built right in, and a natural climax with or without orgasm. When the baby came out, I'd hold it up like in The Lion King and everyone would cheer. Yes, and I'd have the sound tech play Circle of Life. And then when the cheers died down, I'd pull the baby into my chest and have the lighting tech zoom the spotlight on just the baby and me. A real close shot, and everything else would be black. This would be my moment of triumph. It would be hard because I'm not a crier, but I could probably squeeze out a single tear. Everyone who bought a ticket would get a beeper, So when I went into labor, the beeper would go off and everyone would come to the theater. Midday, midnight, who knew? This was the thing about my performance. It would be unplanned. I'd taken an improv class once. This would be total improv, the ultimate reality show. I'd have a midwife, of course, to help with labor. She'd be one of the characters on stage. My mom would be a character as well as my partner and my best friend Stephanie, who had performed for many years in an improv troupe, so she'd be perfect. It would be simple and natural. All I would have to do is have a baby. I worked out my plan, talking it up with everyone and anyone. The more I talked about it, the more I loved it. The flyers would be done up like baby shower invitations. The theater would be equipped with a birthing tub, which I'd heard came in inflatables. When I thought of the beepers, Kate, who was my girlfriend at the time, said, Are you insane? Do you have any sense of privacy? I would never, ever have a baby on stage. Which meant she would never, ever have our baby on stage. We broke up six months before I got pregnant. It's hard to know the real reason a relationship dies, but it could have been because of my having a baby on stage idea. And maybe the relationship could have been salvaged because, as it turns out, I'm someone who doesn't like having babies in front of people. After the shower, my mom handed me the robe she'd gotten me for this occasion. It was white with lips embroidered all over it. It was fluffy and warm. I put it on. But labor is kind of a workout, so I didn't last long in the robe. I spent the next seven hours pacing the room, which was a bedroom with a jacuzzi. I was on the bed, off the bed, squatting, whatever I could do to lessen the pain, which was nothing. Downward dog became my most comfortable position. Mine was a version of dog, more like shoving my face into pillows with my butt in the air. I think they call this dolphin. I thought about the view my mom was getting, the view for my friends. I hadn't waxed in months. What for? Mine was the immaculate conception. In retrospect, how embarrassing. But by that point, I'd lost all dignity. When Dana told me I could get in the tub, which meant the end was near, I hurt so bad I wanted to cry. But I couldn't. Instead, I fell asleep from the pain and woke up contracting. Contraction, sleep, contraction, one minute, maybe two minutes between contractions. It wasn't much sleep. I contracted for another hour at least until it was finally time to push. And then I couldn't. I thought I'd shit for real if I pushed. I got out of the tub. I tried squatting again. I tried a birthing chair. I was 10 centimeters dilated, and after 17 hours, it was time to push the baby out. But I couldn't. Not with people watching. I thought I'd lost all dignity. I thought I didn't care about dignity, self-respect, pride, privacy— But there was a point for me, and it was this. The moment I would push my baby through my vagina. What if I had an orgasm? What if my baby came out dead? I asked everyone to leave. I said, please get out, everybody. Then alone with Dana, I lay on my back on the bed and pushed. I pushed my baby through my vagina, and she was born. When Dana placed her on my chest, I held my baby And I cried so hard.
0: It's true. There are times we think we can handle something uncomfortable, but when that something happens, we panic. tells her story next. By the time she found herself in our writing class, staying in her comfort zone
3: was not even an option. Yesterday, I picked up my fifth white chip. In Narcotics Anonymous, we use a chip system to denote how much clean time one has. The chips symbolize that you are gambling with your life when you pick up drugs. They vary in color as you accumulate more clean time. The first chip you pick up is the white chip. It signifies surrender to a new way of life. It tells all the addicts in the room that you admit you are powerless over your addiction to drugs. You've come to terms with the fact that your life had become unmanageable and are ready to take the first step towards recovery. After I surrendered for the fifth time, I got a huge bear hug from a fellow NE member that I consider to be a big brother. He always dons a healthy, envy-worthy tan and is usually dressed in cargo shorts, sneakers, and a simple t-shirt. He calls me Kid. After meetings, my big brother hangs around to fellowship with the other addicts. He says this is the key to staying clean. Once he stood with me in the parking lot of a church four hours until the clock stroke midnight just to help me stay clean for that one day. Kid, you did good today. Keep coming back till you get it, he says with a big toothy grin. I've relapsed four times since I got out of rehab on March 1st. I had 90 days clean when I relapsed the first time. The day I received my red 90-day chip, I got a round of applause from my NA family. On my way back to my seat, I was greeted with warm hugs and congratulated with excited high fives from the only people who have ever understood me. For everyone in that room, I had accomplished something worth celebrating. But inside, I didn't feel victorious. As great as it was to reach enough clean time that I graduated from one ship to the next, I had arrived at 90 days with many reservations. Feeling like a fraud, I went out and picked up. I took one bump of Coke and was immediately lifted out of my dark, foggy depression. Coke has always had a way of putting me on top of the world. Without it, I'm nobody. The problem is, it's never just one bump. Soon after that first 20, the high runs out of steam and I quickly fall back into the deep well where I am trapped most days. Because it never ends well, you'd think it'd be easy to stop. But my brain doesn't remember the bad part. It only focuses on the one good moment and chases that dream until I destroy myself. I've played the tape in my head over and over, recounting how I relapsed this last time. I thought I was doing all the right things, taking as many of the suggestions as I could about how to live clean. But there I was, peeling out of a meeting to jump on the expressway and dialing my dealer on the way. They say that when you have a burning desire to use, you should reach out and share where you're at with a fellow addict. We're encouraged to get numbers and actually call people. The therapeutic value of one addict helping another is without parallel. But my addiction has been active for over 25 years, way before I even picked up my first drug. The old habit of isolating, rationalizing, and giving in to an overwhelming feeling of worthlessness are so deeply embedded in me. I'm scared I won't be able to overcome this pattern I've grown accustomed to. I'm afraid I'll never learn to love Karen enough to give her a fighting chance. They say it takes 66 days to break an old habit. If I do all the right things and work the program the correct way, I should be able to make this the last white chip I ever pick up. For Karen, living in
0: her comfort zone is dangerous because it involves drug addiction. For the next 90 days, Karen has committed to write about her recovery on our blog. Okay, so here's the prompt for this episode. When was the last time you went too deep into your stretch zone and panicked? Just write for about 10 minutes and send us your voicemail. This episode is produced by Misha Morrell, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer, with editorial help from Chaplin Tyler. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. Theme music by Adriel Borshansky. Additional music by Misha Morrell and Ari Herstand. Check out all our musicians on our website. Study the stories we study, listen to our craft talks, and don't forget to follow Karen on our blog. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Hey, and for anyone interested in Seeds of Peace, you can find them at seedsofpeace.org. Also, Misha's hosting a fundraiser called Bridges to Peace Walk. You can find that info on our Facebook page. Uh,
1: let's rebuild our broken bridges and come back to